I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to The Connection. A few years ago, our guest, Danigal Goldthwaite-Young, wrote in Vox about becoming a conspiracy theorist when her husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. In her fear, anxiety, and anger, she went down what she called a rabbit hole of conspiratorial thinking. She felt out of control and desperate to find a reason, an explanation, someone or something to blame for her husband's medical crisis. She writes in her new book, Wrong, how media, politics, and identity drive our appetite for misinformation with this story. She writes that in times of chaos and crisis, it's easy for all of us to fall prey to dis and misinformation. That's because of our need to make sense of what's going on, to feel some semblance of control over events, and to feel part of a community of like-minded people. It can make us feel right even when we're wrong. It's very difficult to live with ambiguity and uncertainty, especially when we're flooded with information that's targeted at our vulnerabilities. Danigal Young describes how political leaders and media organizations use our insecurities to divide us, to turn us against each other, and how we can fight back. Danigal Goldthwaite Young is a political and social psychologist, professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. She's also an improvisational comedian. And Danigal, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks, Marty. It's great to be here. You know, I'm so glad you started with that story because it it does humanize what we're going to be talking about. It's also very personal as well because your husband... Mm -hmm did sadly die of this of the complications from this brain tumor um but you were able to use this sort of to describe your own struggles as someone who's an improvisational comedian struggles with wanting someone or something to blame yeah and i think that in my mind there was so much wonderful research coming out about misinformation and even the psychology of misinformation beliefs and but a lot of social scientists, their their work is is stays in academic journals, sure. and their work is also usually written as sort of an objective outsider looking in on human behavior, often ignoring the fact that we ourselves, as social scientists, are human as well. And I thought in the early days of COVID, as I had friends and family who were reaching out and sharing information that was clearly conspiratorial or false, but saying hey, could this be true? Mm-hmm. Could could this claim about Anthony Fauci be true? Could this claim about, you know, microchips and vaccines be true? I, these are folks who are well-meaning, good people, smart people who were in crisis. We were all in crisis. We were in a shared crisis. And I really thought about the connection between that moment in my own past and the struggles that they were going through. And I thought maybe I could use a vulnerable first-person perspective Mm -hmm. as a pathway to communicate some of the research on why it is we do this. And a lot of books have been written about misinformation and disinformation, but you're looking at the at it from another side, from the demand side, from the people side, from about people what, side. but what we do when we're faced with misinformation or disinformation. I, I, I really enjoy thinking about it in terms of demand. I, I had a, a wonderful conversation with my editor early on about how there are a lot of folks studying the supply side of misinformation, mm-hmm. looking at its content, looking at the map of the landscape, the accounts that share it the most, etc. Um, and I thought. But the issue is there wouldn't be so much of it if there weren't a market for it. 
Supply and, and demand. Exactly. Right? There's a market for it. So there's demand for it. There's an appetite for it. And uh, so I wanted to put the word demand in the title. And she was right and said, people are going to push back against that and they're not going to want to read it because they're going to say, no, I demand to be accurately informed. And she was absolutely right. When I talk about this, people really want to believe that they want accuracy. But I hate to break their spirit, <laughs> but we, we actually don't. But our default is not to be empirically accurate. Well, what I think is so interesting, and maybe this speaks to what you just said, is that we do live in this so-called information age. I mean, we are awash with information and some of that information is correct and is accurate. So it is interesting that when we do have access to things that might be correct about Anthony Fauci, mm -hmm. that we would choose not to believe it. And if you think about it in terms of survival, you know, to me, I think evolutionary psychology is one of those things where, you know, if everything, you know, if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, right? right. However, I do find it very useful in this context to understand why is it that we would privilege other kinds of motivations over what we call accuracy motivations. Well, if you think thousands of years ago, as our ancestors were trying to survive in a very threatening world full of hostile coalitions, hostile groups and tribes, what is more likely to help you survive in that context as an individual person? Is it to believe in something that may be empirically accurate but goes against the beliefs of everyone on your team? Or is it to believe in something that's completely false but is shared by your team? And because we can't survive alone and we have to survive in groups, our systems really do prioritize that sort of shared understanding even if it's wrong. And teams create other teams who often view each other as, if not opponents, but as enemies. As enemies. And a lot of times that is the nature of that misinformation and those misperceptions. It's oftentimes about the outgroups. You know, there's a whole area of research on uh, social epistemology, which is the idea that knowledge itself is a social construct and it's socially determined. And... My hope was to try to take some of that research, take some of that literature, and, and explain it through anecdote, example, um, but also to explain some of the experiments that have been done that are so fascinating in those areas in ways that are um, really readily understandable for regular folks to say, I this helps me understand why I think about the world the way I do and why my Aunt Sally thinks about the world the way she does. And I do want to get to all of that, but let me ask you a big yeah. existential question. Uh -oh. Already? <laughs> well, yeah, I know. It's only a couple <laughs> minutes into the interview. But, but nonetheless, when we're talking about making decisions without full knowledge or certainty, I mean, that there are existential questions about how how do we live in a world and create a meaningful life when we don't know everything? We don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't have all the information at our fingertips. It's just, it's sort of part of this human condition to sort of go on in spite of all of that. Yeah, and, and there is an inherent tension between what is ultimately what I would consider a normative good, which is being comfortable in the not knowing and not mm -hmm. feeling like you have to rush to judgment, right? But also our needs for survival. 
which oftentimes require us to make decisions quickly and efficiently without adequate mm-hmm. information. And if you think about the pressures on human beings to to survive, which is ultimately what, what we're here for, exactly. um, you can understand why it would be that when we're in crisis and things are stressful and it feels like there's some existential threat, that we would make a decision to take some kind of action based on information that is maybe not clearly mm-hmm. evidenced, but at least makes us feel like I comprehend what's going on. I feel like this offers me some control. And even better, it's shared by other members of my community. And so this is what I'm going to go with. And, and what you're saying is that we often make decisions, big decisions, big. based on feelings. Often. I mean, and, and fe- that's feelings necess- are transitory. I mean, yeah. they're, you know, they come sure. and go. And that's not necessarily bad. In fact, you know, in, in my first book, Irony and Outrage, I, I, I look at the psychological profiles of social liberals and social conservatives because, you know, folks on the social and cultural left and right, on average, tend to have distinct uh, psychological traits. Liberals tend to be more comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and unpredictability. And conservatives tend to need more closure, predictability, certainty. And it's largely because uh, social conservatives are more likely to be monitoring their environments for threats. Hmm. And if that's what you're doing, then you need to make decisions quickly and efficiently because you don't have the luxury of time, right? So if you think about if we lived in a world where those interpersonal and real physical tangible threats are present, it maybe isn't so great to have infinite tolerance for ambiguity because you do need someone who is going to make reliable, consistent decisions, maybe even off of emotions, because emotions emotions have been caricatured as kind of, you know, necessarily lesser than more rational mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. However, it, our emotional responses are signals that have manifested over thousands of years that signal to the brain what is going on around us. The problem is not our emotions. The problem is that we do not live in a benign information Mm. environment. We live in an information environment that is highly manipulated and where we are often exploited. And I do want to get to that, but, but just staying with emotions for a little bit, especially if there are threats, and there are threats in the world, one cannot minimize that, then I imagine fear, anxiety, mm-hmm. anger. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of all the emotions that one would feel if one feels threatened. Yeah, and what I, I am very interested in the research on the distinctions between the, what happens when we feel fear versus anxiety versus mm-hmm. anger. You know, you think that they're all negative emotions, and so they all make us feel similar ways, but they don't. And they are all distinct in terms of their effects on our attitudes and especially on our behaviors. Fear is an emotion that will activate that sense of flight, like I need to get away from the threat. Anger is an approach emotion. If something is making you mad and it's not coupled with that fear, There's a target to your emotion, and when you feel angry, there's amazing work that shows that when people feel angry, do you know that they end up feeling more optimistic, Hmm. which feels odd, right? But it's because there's a direction to their emotion, and they're like, oh, I have something I can do or someone that I need to get because I'm mad. 
Is that the kind of fight flight? Then when you t- I exactly. mean, fear, you run. Anger, you fight. Exactly. And, and this, when you start to think about our psychophysiological systems and how they're activated in these different ways and how they can be used to mobilize us, and then you start to deconstruct some of the messaging in our political information environment, and you realize, oh, this isn't just messaging that's designed to make me feel, you know, generically fearful. They want me to be angry because they want me to do something. And that they were almost up in a break here, and the they is anything from advertising to political elites, as you describe them, to uh, to media organizations. Correct, and partisan media organizations, and and social media platforms as well. Of course, their their bread and butter is emotional responses of users. So. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take that short break, and then we'll get back to our guest today on The Connection. Danigal Goldthwaite-Young is a professor at uh, the University of Delaware. I mentioned the fact she's also an improvisational comedian, and she writes books. Uh, the brand-new book is titled Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. In fact, uh, coming up on this very short break, we will talk about uh, the insurrection and the emotions that were driving so many of the participants uh, as part of that insurrection. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moskowain, and again, our guest is Danigal Goldthwaite-Young. She's got a new book. Uh, I mentioned right before the break, it's called Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. I mentioned the fact, and, and you write quite a bit about the January 6th insurrection, I think everyone knows what we're talking about here, but this belief of the people who stormed the Capitol, the belief in this big lie that the election was being stolen from them, many people to this day, and we're almost three years after that, still believe in this great big lie. Of course, you've got Donald Trump who, you know, continues to tout this. But how do you see, based on what we're talking about, how do you see the insurrection? The belief in the big lie is a really, well, it's... horrible for democracy, but it's a wonderful illustration of of these dynamics that are at the heart of what I call identity-driven wrongness. Um, If you think about how we're not really motivated to be accurate in our understanding of the world, rather we're motivated to feel like we comprehend it, feel that we have control, and be a part of a community, right? Those three C's. The big lie, or or the, the lie that was pushed by Donald Trump and others, that Joe Biden did not actually legitimately win the election. It was riddled with fraud. There was mail-in voter fraud. There were voting systems like like these Dominion voting systems. They they allege, they falsely allege that that flipped votes, etc. All of these falsehoods actually satisfy all three of these needs. So if I am someone who has been watching partisan media for a year before the election, I've been told a couple things. One, I've been told that if Donald Trump loses, that my entire way of life is under threat, especially socially and culturally. It's under threat. Because he told you. Because he told me that that's what would happen. And number two, he's also told me that the only way that he can lose is if the Democrats cheat. 
So now, he loses the election. How do I make sense of that? How do I comprehend the incomprehensible? Well, I, well, it, it, he didn't lose. That's how I comprehend it. How do I control it? Well, there are people that I can blame for this, and there are things that I can do. For example, I could storm the Capitol on January 6th to try to stop the certification of the electoral vote count. And when it comes to community, there's that amazing quote in the beginning of the book by one of the insurrectionists who simply says that she's so proud because she stormed the Capitol with effing patriots that day, which to me really signals that there's, there was a real sense of solidarity and community among the folks who were there that day. So all the op-eds written about the election that it was not stolen, all the court decisions mm-hmm. that said it wasn't stolen, mm-hmm. even now mm-hmm. that you've got you know, lawyers who are part of this whole cabal are beginning to peel themselves away from Trump, even that is not enough to change people's minds? This is what got me interested in this question in the first place because there's so much research on how if you provide someone with corrective information, a lot of times it does not change their mind. Or maybe they will start to believe the truth on that one little piece of information, but they won't allow that to then update their larger attitude. So maybe you'll believe a specific little thing now about Donald Trump, but you're not going to change how you view him. That suggests that there are all all sorts of other dynamics that are going on. And those dynamics are very emotional and they're very social. They're very social psychological. And they have to do with social identity, which is at the heart of this book. Yeah, I just scribbled the word identity because that is so powerful for all of us. It's like how we define who we are, who's part of our tribe, what we believe in, how we see the world. Yeah. And if you think about social identity is just social identity theory has been around since the 1970s and really it was it was something that was developed to help account for why it is there is prejudice why it is there is racism why it is there is bigotry and and it turns out that we really it's very easy for us to and, and attractive for us to want to be a part of a team for these reasons I talked about earlier related sure. to survival right so but we have we all have a ton of different social identities, right? Like I'm I'm a kid from New Hampshire, so I share a social identity with folks from New Hampshire. Um, I'm a fan of the Phillies, but when I'm in New Hampshire, guess what? I mean, much to my Philly friends' chagrin, you're a Red Sox I'm a Red, fan. I'm a Red oh, Sox no. fan when I'm back home, right? <laughs> because and this is important, social right. identity is flexible. It's malleable. It's shaped by the things going on around us, right? It's also shaped by perceptions of threat. So. Because I'm someone from New England, when the shooting in Lewiston, Maine happened, and now still as as this shooter is on the loose and we're not sure what's happening, and I'm thinking about these folks who I share kinship with, who are New Englanders, who are just stuck in their houses, not sure what's going on, I feel that that social identity is under threat. And so I have, for the last couple of days, been thinking of myself more in terms of that identity than I usually do. You feel more like a New Englander. Like a New than- Englander, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's very common. We find that a lot. When, when one social identity is under threat, it's on our minds. And the final thing that makes an identity salient is when we fit really well into a category. So if we look like other people in that category, if we act like they do, if we live our lives like they do, we feel very close to them, and that category defines us. And the problem in American politics right now, Marty, is that over the last 40 years, our two political parties 
have become increasingly distinct along these really primal lines of, of race, ethnicity, religion, culture, geography. And so you have folks in a, across the two parties who really live very differently from one another, and so they feel increasingly distinct from one another. Which kind of cements that identi- that tribal identity Correct. and, again, viewing the other side as some kind of perceived threat or, or somebody who's immoral Correct. and wrong. Yeah, the, the immorality piece is huge yeah, because if there is a sense that uh, there is someone who is a member of an outgroup, it's not just that they're different. Right. We tend to perceive them as distant from us and lesser than us. Let me play a clip, and this is related yeah. to the that just horrendous shooting up in um, in Maine. And this is Maine Representative Jared Gold, and he was speaking yesterday at a press conference about changing his mind on an assault weapons ban. And this was obviously after the mass shooting in Lewiston that has killed 18 people so far, and many and many others um, who have been injured. Let's just hear what he said, and then um, Dan, I'd like to talk to you about it. Out of fear of this dangerous world that we live in and my determination to protect my own daughter and wife in our home and in our community, because of a false confidence that our community was above this and that we could be in full control among many other misjudgments, I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war like the assault rifle we used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing in my hometown of Lewiston, Maine. And that is a member of Congress saying, I was wrong. If you think about the language that he uses, it is really remarkable because he he explicitly says that he held these beliefs about assault weapons because he wanted to feel like he had control he wanted could to f- protect his he family. He could protect his family. And he, you know, Maine is a state where hunting is very much part of the culture. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of wilderness in Maine. There's a lot of deer hunting in Maine. Um, and I think gun ownership also becomes part of the identity in many of these communities. So for him to then say, I've changed my mind on this specific piece of this issue... What that does is that shows a willingness to update one's beliefs in light of new evidence. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the book, when I talk about pathways forward, I talk about this trait called intellectual humility, which is just being willing to recognize that our own knowledge is fallible and that we might be wrong. And when we live our lives that way, First of all, ironically, we're way more likely to be right, right? Um, it, well, that's interesting. <laughs> to admit we're wrong, we're more likely to be yeah. right. Because we're willing to, to doubt and question our own beliefs. Correct. And you're willing to update in light of new evidence. If you are intellectually arrogant and you come at every conversation with the idea that you are correct, you are going to be very unlikely to update your beliefs. And you know what? You're probably going to end up being wrong. Um, I love that this is getting so much media attention. I love the way that he expressed this, and it was tearful and vulnerable, and it expressed a real honest reconsideration of his views. Mm -hmm. And what I hope is that media outlets and journalists portray this and frame this as something to be 
respected and as a sign of strength. Because historically, intellectual humility is mm-hmm. punished in our media information environment. In fact, I heard someone yesterday uh, say, you know, well, what took you so long? Right. And it's like, my gosh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? Um, But if you think about when people tend to change their minds, politicians, right? Or if you have an analyst or an expert on a show who says, this is what I think right now, but I might be wrong. The host doesn't want that. Gosh darn it. I mean, you might, Marty. But I mean, if you're talking about some of these, especially cable news shows, where it's very much about emotional engagement, what they want is confidence, not humility. And I think that's devastating. And that's uh, Danigal Goldthwaite Young, our guest today on The Connection. She's got a new book we've been talking about with the big title, Wrong, and it's subtitled How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for misinformation and she's a professor of communication and politics at the university of delaware and she's an improv comedian on top of that i want to pick up on what you said too about the the two parties although i do think we have a third party there are a lot of independents or people that don't claim identification with either the democrats or the republicans but this notion that we are divided not just because we look at politics differently but we watch different TV shows, we eat at different restaurants, we like different food, that the division is really cultural and Mm -hmm. social and interpersonal. And devastating. It's really, when you you talk to Democratic theorists, um, there's a a book that came out a couple years ago, How Democracies Die, Mm -hmm. by Levitsky and Ziblatt, and they look at democracies around the globe and some of the factors that contribute to democratic erosion. And chief among that is when political parties start to map onto religion, religious sects, or racial and ethnic divisions. Mm -hmm. Because then what happens is that it's no longer a deliberative debate of ideas. It is a battle of group identity. And that can be very devastating. And I'll just say, when the fact that we have sorted ourselves into these two parties along the lines of of race and ethnicity and religion, Mm -hmm. um, first of all, that happened because of a shift in the parties in the 1960s that resulted from blacks from the South moving north and west, moving to cities, and really causing the Democratic Party to prioritize civil rights in their platform. And that was Johnson, right? That was the Civil Rights Act. And and there was a partisan racial realignment of the parties. Well, that sort of forced the hand of Southern Republicans looking to expand their ranks because a lot of the folks who perhaps had made some kind of compromises before now were leaving the party. And there was an untapped sort of dormant group that had culturally conservative views but was not a huge political force and that was evangelical christians Mm. and so when you look at the deliberate efforts of the republican party in the 1970s to politically activate this group that's the sort of real beginning of this realignment across all these different categories and while these dynamics are occurring across both parties, right, where we have separated along these lines. I contend that part of the reason we see more misinformation on the right, which we do 
part of the reason that Fox and all right and Fox but but also when you look at the social media research on the amount of information what it is arguing the dis and misinformation that tends to favor these more uh, culturally conservative viewpoints it is an asymmetrical phenomenon out there and I think in the U.S. part of the reason for that is because under the Republican umbrella you have a really a homogenous group of identities. They're overwhelmingly, of course, not to a person, okay, right. but just overwhelmingly white, evangelical, Christian, rural, culturally conservative. And as you said earlier, again, we're speaking in broad generalizations Correct. here, view the world as a more threatening place, probably because it is becoming less white and less Christian and more diverse. And if, think about, you know, this is like the tail wagging the dog all the time, because think about what happens now if you're, if you are, by the way, if you are white evangelical Christian, you live in a rural community and you're culturally conservative, there is nothing wrong with that. You're, you can be a wonderful person. That's not the issue. The issue is that a party that contains people that all are quite similar like that can be readily activated and ignited through identity threats, and identity threats related to race and religion. And if you look at the content of like a Tucker Carlson, for example, right, or the Fox News analysis shows, it is very clearly about activating a white conservative um, identity threat. Those people. Yes, correct. correct. The the hordes coming over the Right, I mean, think about the attention paid to the caravans, you know, the, the the notion of the conspiracy theory known as the Great Replacement Theory, which Tucker Carlson and others on the right have pushed, this is sort of like the perfect example of identity-threatening misinformation, right? That the Democrats are plotting to make the country more ethnically diverse mm-hmm. so that the Republicans lose their electoral power. That is a racist conspiracy theory. Well, it's in, this is a show called The Connection, which and then we, we try to find connections between groups of people, yeah. the, the things that we all care about. And it's interesting to think of connection and community as having this kind of toxic um, environment um, that allows people to stay angry yeah. and accusatory and then sort of deluded in, in their beliefs. Right. And this has been something that I think social scientists have struggled with for a long time, that when you look at communities, for example, that have really high civic participation or, you know, everyone goes to the town hall meetings and they all trust each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes what you find that accompanies that is that it's a homogenous community. And, you know, but I don't think that that correlation is necessarily causal. I do not think that it is impossible I mean, we know it's not impossible to have a diverse, pluralistic community where there is intergroup trust Mm -hmm. and participation and involvement. Um, We just have to be willing to reconsider all of these external pressures that are trying to take advantage of these fissures. Again, we're up on a break here. We're just picking up on that. And this, again, goes to the to the demand side. I mean, what you're saying in this book is, yes, there are all these forces coming at us, but we have choices. 
Yeah. And we can make decisions about things and we can change our minds. And I think maybe that's what sets me apart from some, some of my dear friends who work in this space is I'm a tireless optimist. <laughs> maybe maybe it's because I do improv comedy and I'm like, yes, and there's a way forward. Right. Yes, and. Um, but I firmly believe that because all of these media systems and public officials are all trying to do things to activate us. They're trying to operate in anticipation of what they think we want and who they think we think we are. That means that we actually hold the cards. Marty, we hold the cards. Again, supply and demand. Exactly. Exactly right. I'll tell you what, another short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. Danigal Goldthwaite-Young is our guest today on The Connection. And again, she's got a new book. It's got a big word on the top. It says wrong, and it's subtitled How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. Much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Danigal Goldthwaite-Young. She's a political and social psychologist, professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. She's also an improv comedian, and we've been talking about her new book called Wrong. I want to talk about how being an improvisational comedian, as you say, kind of makes you an optimist or perhaps you were an optimist and then became an improv comedian because it fits so nicely together. But talk about sort of living in uncertainty or operating in uncertainty. Um, how does that help us, do you think, navigate through these troubled times? This is where when my late husband got sick and got this diagnosis, um, I am not a person who is organically comfortable with uncertainty. Um, I'm just not. In fact, I remember learning improv and training with my improv company like 25 years ago. And when I would get on stage, sure, I'd be funny, but I would want to script the whole scene. I would get on stage and I'd be like, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's where we're going. Here's who you are. Here's who I am. Here's the conflict. Wrong. Wrong. And it's like, oh, no, 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 Dana. No, you got to, you got to sit in the uncertainty, give one offer and then listen. And I'm like, but that's terrifying. Right. Um, But I think that the practice of improv is so important because it does force you to sit in ambiguity. And so um, Mike, my late husband and all of our friends are sort of artists and improv comics, etc. And so one of the things that stopped me from being in that rabbit hole, which I was only down for a couple of weeks, but Uh, Let me tell you, embracing conspiracies made me feel like I had a direction in that moment because I was like, now I know who to be mad at and what I should do. But it felt antithetical to the social norms of my community. And I feel so grateful to them for being like, Dan, I don't I don't know that that's helping right now. Like what he actually needs is, you know, maybe we could create an online schedule so that we know that when you go home with the baby, like he has someone at dinner every night and we can put fun things up on his wall and bring him like cozy things to sleep with and at the hospital. And that offered me control in a way that was adaptive and positive Um, and allowed you to be with your husband. Exactly. And uh, let me tell you, I'm still not great with uncertainty and ambiguity, mm-hmm. but I think it is a muscle that you can work. Um, and having to get on stage in front of people and you have no idea where you're going, 
I mean, let me tell you, it's it's a really useful skill to have when you enter a classroom. Very, very useful. Yeah. <laughs> or, or life itself. I did share with you that I took a improv class, comedy improv class at my local community college. And um, I don't think I was particularly good for all the reasons that you just said there, which was just that fear of operating without a script not knowing where things are going which boggles my mind because i sit here with you today and we're having a conversation <laughs> that is largely improvisational well but i i have my notes you as have you can notes. See, i have notes That's i'm true. not married to them but yeah. i have my notes yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, i think that um I think improv is something wonderful for, for everyone to do. I, a lot of folks will say that they developed a kind of confidence that they didn't know that they had before. Mm -hmm. um, it also is a wonderful thing to bring into relationships because the, the art of improv is predicated on sharing and sharing a scene. So like I said, when you come on stage and you give an offer, you just give a little bit of an offer yeah. and then you let your partner build on it and you, if you don't listen, you're going to tank the whole thing. So listening is so key. And I think I think that the philosophy of improv is something that you can kind probably find in my research and in my writing because it's very much think about what what intellectual humility is. Well, sure. Right? Being open to other information that is out there and coming in. Like not being so firmly stuck on what you already are bringing to the table. Also about trust, which I think kind of takes us back to, to where your book yeah. is, which is the ability to trust the world or trust institutions or trust yes. trust trusted people, yes. <laughs> you know, think can, can tell you the truth or not. Yeah, and trust other people around you um, and trust them to not let you down. Right. Um, the, the research in these spaces is, I understand why, why folks who are social scientists tend to be pessimistic because sometimes when you find oh, wow, the folks who trust other people the least are also the most likely to believe in conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. have low trust in institutions, et cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> I come at it, and I'm like, yeah, but the people who trust other people the most are the least likely to believe conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and the most likely to trust in institutions, et cetera. So how do we find ways to move that ball forward? Because there's always a way. Yeah. I mean, what I love about social science and science in general is that what you're trying to do is explain relationships between concepts so that maybe you can predict the conditions under which a certain outcome might happen. So we explain relationships so that we can predict relationships. And in many cases, if you can predict the relationships between things, you might find that there are vectors of influence to be able to change them. And that, to me, is liberating and exhilarating. And that's what I hope to offer, especially in the, right. the final chapter of the book. Yeah, and, and you say at the very end, and you hope you're not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course, you know, I, I, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. You might be wrong. But, but okay, so you but might okay. be wrong. I might be wrong. That's right. okay. I have written, I have literally written articles where I say, you know, past work in this area has failed to consider the crucial concepts of X, Y, and Z. See, for example, Young 2015. <laughs> Which would be you. Which would right. be me. Yeah. Right? And that's, I love science for that reason. Uh, science and improv share a lot in common as well. I mean, moving forward, I mean, you've, I think, described in very way, in really concrete ways about this sort of, this very divided world that we live in. 
Um, so how do we get people who don't trust each other, they don't recognize each other, they don't maybe like each mm -hmm. other, they don't think the other person is, is on a moral path? How do you get some connection there? I am made even more optimistic when I look at the data on where Americans actually stand on public policy issues. Because even if somebody checks all of these boxes where they're, they say that they're this party and they fall in all these different socio-demographic categories or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's a super lefty liberal, or oh, that's a mega Republican. Guess what? If you actually get in under the hood and start to drill down on how they feel about issues, they are, I, I can almost guarantee that they are more complicated and nuanced than you would think. Mm -hmm. And the example I provide in the book is that when the state of Kansas, um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, the conservative state legislature in Kansas was like, well, we have a reliably red state here. Why don't we put to the voters, our reliably conservative voters, a referendum to, at the level of the state, um, ban abortion? And they did it. And do you know that it was voted down by 20%? Yeah. Because people are not as homogenous in their views as their categories would lead us to believe. And what that tells me is that we, we have to always give the benefit of the doubt. You don't know. You have no idea where folks stand. Have a conversation. Find common ground. Now, I do say in the final chapter that there are non-negotiables for me, right? And those non-negotiables have to do with there must be equality of representation and voice across racial, ethnic, religious categories, sexual orientation categories, because we are a liberal pluralistic democracy. So if there's any solutions that are like, oh, you know what you, we could do to make everybody get along, we could just, you know, exclude this category of people. That These, these are not answers. <laughs> these are not solutions. Um, I also suggest that we ourselves think about our own performance of social identity, uh, especially in online spaces where we may feel pressure to look like the perfect prototype of our category so that we don't make our friends mad or we don't get pushback. But we, we owe it to ourselves and to democratic health to be a bit more honest in our representation of our views, which might mean putting yourself at odds with your friends on a particular issue. We are witnessing all kinds of things going on right now with the online debate over what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have actually been encouraged by some of the more nuanced conversations that I have found. I mean, most of them are not. But not nuanced. Not no. nuanced. But there are some where folks are saying, you know what, I do not want to have to embrace this view because everyone on my team says I have to look like this. And I want to express that I do not agree with that. I think that that's a step in the right direction. I wanted to shift gears slightly, but, but you mentioned uh, Israel and Gaza. This was a piece you wrote for The Atlantic titled How to Deal with 2016 Despair. And I will just quote a couple of things that you write. The past year has brought a seemingly endless stream of graphic video footage from around the globe, including attacks by ISIS in Syria, 
Boko Haram in Nigeria and bombings in Paris and Brussels in the U.S. It has witnessed coverage of mass shootings, raw footage of fatal police-civilian encounters, videos of hateful language and threats against religious and racial minorities. I mean, that also describes what we are seeing today. Um, and I think on the one hand... You, we can just—I mean, we hear people saying, "I don't want to hear that anymore. I'm done. You know, I'm just not going to do the news." I think we owe it to people who are victims or related to victims to bear witness to what is going on in the world. But at the same time, you can feel a kind of learned helplessness because you feel like, "Well, what can I do?" Correct. And I think that balance is something that many of us are always trying to strike every day. And the way that I end that piece is. If you feel that you are starting to shut down and lose hope and lose any sense of efficacy or voice, then take the time to what I think of as sort of going small, like go inward a bit, focus on your sort of domestic life, the people close to you, um, with the idea that you are replenishing your system and your fortitude so that you can go back to bear witness another day. Mm -hmm. I think we can also find avenues of agency. That, that's a, a lot of what's going on in those moments when we're like, I got to tune out, is that we don't know what the heck we're supposed to do. Right. And I think people think, well, if I, can't, if I can't create peace between Israel and Palestine, then I'm going to just stop watching. But think about all the avenues of agency we have every day. And I don't mean to solve the crisis in the Middle East. I mean to bring peace and positivity and democratic health in our, to our communities, right, to the people around us. So whether it be through volunteering, going to church, having um, organizing some kind of a, like a blood drive, or et cetera, there are so many things that we can do every single day that give us that agency, even just connecting with other people on the matters of sort of the banalities of everyday life, mm -hmm. those connections are what create community. And so we, we always have agency. And it's okay if you need to take that time to step back out so that you can step back in. It's funny, in the last three years, you know, everything sort of ended up with COVID, you know, how much COVID has defined and changed our world in so many ways. How do you see that sort of factoring into all the, the chaos, the, the confusion, the uncertainty that I think so many people feel? It, I was listening this morning to a meteor, meteorologist from the New York Times talk about um, the, how the warm waters are responsible for these sort of unpredictable storms and how they change the, the, the sort of algorithms and the predictive models. And so I guess my sense is um, COVID operated almost like warm water. You have all these dynamics that are already happening. You know, you have these patterns that are happening. You have the social psychology. You have the media systems. But COVID was like a great accelerator mm -hmm. because it created the conditions under which all of these processes thrive in a bad way, right? So the, the uncertainty, the feeling of threat, um, social isolation, which is really awful for people, as we've talked about. It's awful for our mental health. And it's awful for our mental health because historically we've not been able to survive alone. Sure. 
So you tell people they have to stay alone in their homes. I mean, that is a devastating proposition. Um, so I think that it simply amplified and accelerated some of these processes. Is there a short version about how this book that you wrote connects with an ancestor of yours who was yeah. hung at the Salem witch trials? So, uh, yes, Marty, as I alluded to during the break, I, I, I just realized my daughter is reading The Crucible about the Salem witch trials in, in her eighth grade English class. And I said, well, you know, uh, Rebecca Nurse, who was hanged and that, who that, that book is about, is, our, is your ninth great grandmother. And so I started talking to her about the Salem Witch Trials and realized the Salem Witch Trials were an example of identity-driven wrongness. There was a land dispute, a dispute between families. And these were claims that were being made about Rebecca Nurse that were rooted in a need for comprehension and control and community. And I blew my own mind. Sort of seeing all those yes. connections yes. between then and now. Correct, correct, correct. So I thought maybe, maybe I need to write about that next too. <laughs> Are we headed towards Salem witch trials? Oh gosh, twenty twenty three twenty four. I hope not. I hope not, Marty. I, I, when I talk about these concepts and I talk about these solutions, what I see around me are people nodding furiously all the time. Mm-hmm. As much as there is appetite for misinformation, there's also a giant appetite for what I call identity disruption. People are sick of this. They know that there's a way forward. They want a kind of civic identity and civic participation that's not tied to these bifurcated extremes. They want reasonable discourse, and they, they just want us to be able to find ways forward because there are big problems that need solving. Um, and I think that there are ways forward. Well, we have to leave it there. As always, Danigal Goldthwaite Young, a pleasure to talk to you on the radio. Thank you so much. This is lovely. Lovely to have you. And again, the book is called Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. And she's a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware, also an improv comedian. Uh, Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.